Well, let me invite you to take your Bibles and turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 6. If you don't have a Bible with you, you're welcome to use one of the blue ones in the seat in front of you. I did not write down what page number it's on, but you can use a table of contents. It's roughly in the middle of the Bible. We're going to be looking this morning at Ecclesiastes chapter 6, starting in verse 10, and then going through chapter 7, verse 14. Ecclesiastes chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting, for this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. Surely oppression drives the wise into madness and a bribe corrupts the heart. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. And the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Wisdom is good with an inheritance, an advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. So that man may not find out anything that will be after him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, when I was a little boy, I wanted to be a cowboy. Truth be told, I still do, but that's not the point. When I was a little boy, I wanted to be a cowboy. I wanted to spend my days living on a ranch, busting broncs and roping cows, and of course, riding a horse. Now, you may not know this, but I was well on my way because I actually grew up riding horses. Of course, it wasn't in the Montana mountains. It was in a pen at the county fair. And we didn't really go galloping over wide open fields, but we just walked round and around in a little circle. 
And as we plotted our little loop, though, I'd try giving that horse a nudge with my shoes, thinking I could just spur it on. But you know, it never went any faster. In fact, I got in trouble a few times for trying. Then I'd try to make it stop with a whoa, but the horse just kept right on going. I'd try pulling to the, the right or the left, but the horse always went exactly where it had been trained to go, despite my best cowboy attempts. See, when I was on that horse as a little kid, I believed that I was in absolute control, that I could make the ride look however I wanted to. But the truth was, I was being guided along the whole time. And I could kick and woe and pull the reins all I wanted, but I was not going to change the course of that ride. <laughs> there was someone bigger than me and wiser than me who was in charge of every step we took. And because I spent so much time trying to control the ride, I usually missed out on a lot of the fun those rides could have been if I had just trusted and listened to the guide. The truth, of, the truth of it is, most of us can still be like that little boy. Only now the ride we're on is this life under the sun. Too often we catch ourselves trying to give life a little nudge just to pick up the pace a little bit. Or maybe we try to change the direction with the reins. Or every now and then we catch ourselves just telling life, whoa, slow down a little bit. But no matter how much we may believe the illusion that we are in control of our lives, we are no more in control than I was on that horse. Every step we take has been, is being, and will be guided by a God much stronger and wiser than us. And this morning, the preacher in Ecclesiastes wants us to understand this so that we stop missing out on so much good in life when the ride isn't quite what we were hoping for. Now this morning, we actually come to the halfway point in the book. Now if you remember, the first half of the book was driven by a question that he asked all the way back in chapter 1, verse 3. The question the preacher asked is, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That's what he wanted to know. And he just spent chapters 1 through most of 6 trying to answer it. And as he explored life, he, he wanted to know what advantage is there in living different ways. You remember, he tried pleasure, he tried wisdom, he tried riches, he tried it all. He's looking for full and lasting satisfaction. And the answer he came back to over and over again was exactly what closed out verse 9 in chapter 6, where it says, This also is vanity and a striving after wind. He looked everywhere. He said, where, Okay, what in life is, is the thing that makes it worthwhile? What is the best thing? What's the advantage? And he says, It's all vanity. That's the first half. Now in the second half, he's got two new questions to explore. These two questions are going to drive the rest of the book. And you see the questions in our passage in verse 12. First question, for who knows what is good for man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? Second question, or who can tell man 
what will be after him under the sun? Okay, so in other words, our two questions are, who can tell us what's good in life? And who can know what's coming next? That's what he wants to know. And just like in the first half, we had these phrases that helped us know certain breakpoints. We got the same thing in the second half. The, the phrases you're going to see over and over again in the second half that answer our questions are, first of all, in chapter 7, verse 1 to 8, 17, we're going to focus on the first question he asked. Who knows what is good for man? And the answer you're going to see repeatedly is, man cannot find out. So keep your eyes peeled for that phrase as you, over the next few weeks, just see, man cannot find out, man cannot find out, man cannot find out. Then in chapter 9 through eleven six, we focus on the second question. Who knows what will come next? What's coming? And the answer you see repeatedly is, man does not know, man does not know, man does not know. So as we start, we're faced with life in a world where we're not really in control, we don't really know what's best for us, and we don't know what's coming next. So the question is, how do we live in light of those realities? Where do we look for answers and guidance in a confusing, uncontrollable, and impossible to predict world? That's what our passage is about this morning. So here's our outline for where we're going this morning. If you want to throw that up. Three main points. First, we're going to look at the fact that every day is God's. Then for a big chunk in the middle, we're going to look at wisdom for everyday adversities. And you see there's some sub, sub points. I threw that up there for you note takers. We're going to look at death, rebuke, patience, and the value of wisdom. And then finally, we're going to kind of combine those. And we're going to see that we are called to remember the everyday God in your everyday adversities. Okay, so that's where we're going. So let's look first at chapter 6, verses 10 and 11. He says, Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? All right, so what's our first thing we need to see here? He says that whatever has come to be has already been named. So he looks, he looks back at everything that's happened in history, every event, every circumstance, every single day, and he says that all of it has already been named. Now, when he says named, he doesn't simply mean identified. Like, we'll call that D-Day, and we'll call that Thanksgiving Day. He's not talking about identifying. He means it's been named in the sense that it's been brought into being and put under authority. Think Genesis 1, where God names the day, the night, the sun, the moon, the sky, the earth. Or Psalm 147, which says, He, God, determines the number of the stars... He gives to all of them their names. So the naming is just like parents name the child that they brought forth. It's saying that all the days that have been brought forth have been brought forth by God who has named them. So what it means when it says whatever has come to be has already been named is that 
Everything that has come to be has been sovereignly determined by God in the past and is dependent on him. God has numbered and named every single day that's ever been. That's why David can say in Psalm 139, in your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there were none of them. How could he write that? Because every day is God's. He wrote it, he made it, he planned it, he named it. Every day belongs to him, and every day unfolds exactly as he purposed it. Listen to what God, <clears throat> excuse me, listen to what God says in Isaiah 46. He says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Friends, that is our God. That is the one we worship, the one that says, every day belongs to me. Age to age he stands, and time is in his hands, the beginning and the end. Each and every day our God is seated on his throne, and no one can thwart his purposes. Which brings us to the other truth that you find in verse 10. It says, it is known what man is. So we just looked at who God is. God is the almighty creator and the namer of days. So who are we? We are merely creatures that he named. In fact, what did God name us? <laughs> he called the first one of us man, or Adama, meaning from the dust. Because from the dust we came and to dust we shall return. So let's put these up side by side. God is namer. We are named. He is maker. We are made. He is all wise and all powerful. And we, we are dust. So it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for us to argue with him, does it? Well, that's what the end of verse 10 tells us. He, man, is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. It's not our place, friends, to look at our days and to argue with God and say that the ways that our day looks, well, that, this isn't right. God, this isn't fair. I don't think it should be like this. I, I think my days should look more like that, or I should have that, or I should be that, or I should be with them, or I should get to be there. Job tried arguing with God once. Do you remember? When God permitted Satan to take all that he had, his children, his possessions, his health, Job wanted to argue his case with God. He was confident that he was in the right. And if, he could just, if God would just listen to him as he set forth his case, God would say, oh, you're right. I don't know what I was thinking, Job. But then God showed up and said, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And then after God bombards him with questions that left no doubt about who was Almighty and who was not, 
What did Job say? Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. He goes on to say, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After all that, Job remembered his place. He was merely dust, and he should shut his mouth. Why? Because God is the sovereign one, and every day is his We love to use the phrase, carpe diem, right? Seize the day. Here's the truth. The day is not ours to seize. It's God's. And therefore, rather than seize the day, what we're actually meant to do is receive the day he's given us. Whether it's pain or pleasure, toil or rest, Because every day is his, and he gives what he knows is best. And so we trust the one whose heart is kind beyond all measure to do what's best, because we don't know what that is. That's the point of the questions in verse 12. For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? The answer is, not one of us. Or for who can tell a man what will be after him under the sun? Not you or me. Friends, we don't know what's good for us and we don't know what's coming. Do you know what tomorrow's going to be like? Is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? Will the end of the day find you happy or mourning? We don't know. We are limited in our knowledge and our power. So how should we live these days? Not, it says in verse 11, not by piling up more empty words, but in listening to the God to whom every day belongs. So that's where we go next as chapter 7 opens. So the preacher wants us to know now, okay, what is this God to whom every day belongs? What is he telling us is good? That's what you have here in verses 1 to 12. He's giving us wisdom for everyday adversities. So that we know what's good for us, even when things seem bad. He does this by looking at three things that most of us would rather avoid. Death, rebuke, and patience. And he shows us that there's a better way to experience all three of these so that these seeming adversities actually work for our good. So look first at 7.1. He says, A good name is better than precious ointment. And the day of death than the day of birth. Now, the first part of that makes sense to us, right? Yeah, okay, it's better to have a good reputation than some fancy cologne. I get that. It's better, I mean, I can buy perfume, but I can't buy good character. I got it. But that second part then is a little surprising. The day of death is better than the day of birth. Why is that? And, And how do the two halves of the verse connect? Well, first, I don't believe he's talking about the day of our own death or our own birth here, but that of others around us. 
If you look at the three verses that follow, they all have to do with mourning someone else's death. So in verse 1, it's most likely the same situation. So still the question remains, why is the day of death better? Here's the comparison. Anyone can put on precious ointment. They might be a good person or an evil person. Anyone can put on the same cologne. All you know when they walk around the corner and you are greeted by the smell of them, all you know is that they smell nice. So you, they might leave a favorable impression on you. Like, oh, wow, that's probably a good person. I just caught a whiff of their perfume or their cologne. You have no idea what they're really like. All you know is that superficial, fleeting, momentary impression left by the scent. So, it's better, it says, to have a good name where people actually know your substance and not just your initial impression. So there's, you can just catch a whiff of anybody, but to know someone's name and who they are and their character, you got to get to know them. The aroma comes first, the actual comes later. And in the same way, the day of birth, when someone's born, that's a happy day, right? It's full of promise and hope, but you don't really know what that person's going to be like. I mean, every birth is a happy birth. Like, no one's in the, the natal unit, the, what do you call that thing? Where you have the babies in the hospital, no one's there saying like, oh, look at this one. Oh, that's going to be a serial killer. Like, no one has ever said that about a baby, they're all convinced this child is going to do great things, be a wonderful person, and be a blessing to their family and society. Every baby. What do you know about that baby? Its height and its weight and the fact that it's breathing. That's all you know. But the day of death is the true revealer of character. You learn more about a person through their eulogy than through their birth announcement. One tells you who, who they might be, but the other tells you who they really were. And because of that, the preacher says there's a lot more for us to learn by going to a funeral than to a birthday party. That's what he says in verse 2. He says it is better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Okay, so that's a bold statement. So why is a funeral better than a party? He says because a funeral forces us to face the reality of our own mortality. Death and a funeral is the end of all mankind. You will die. I don't know anything else about your life, but I know that. And a funeral strips away the distractions, strips away the denials, and it teaches us what's real, what really matters. It reminds us that life isn't endless. And a funeral teaches us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. And the wise, the preacher says, takes those lessons and allays them to heart. Fools, on the other hand, they don't like to think about death. That's, that's too heavy, they say. Why, why you always got to be bringing things down? They'd rather be distracted by lighthearted fun. So they just are always joking around. They just keep it light. Don't, don't, get, don't be serious. That's so, ugh. They're always choosing cheap laughs 
over the priceless learning a funeral offers us. But what does verse 3 say? Sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. See, what's going on here is the fools think they're choosing happiness over sadness. That's why they're like, no, no, we're just going to keep it light because we're choosing happiness over sadness. But what the text says they're actually doing is missing out on real joy that's been strengthened and sharpened by sorrow. Do you see that in verse 3? Where there's a kind of deep, strong, hearty joy that comes not through cheap, flimsy laughs, but through facing sorrow. I came across a story this week of a, a man named Douglas Taylor. Wasn't famous. You have no reason to have heard of him. He worked a simple life as an editor at Banner of Truth Publishing, which puts out classic Christian books. And at one point, he was diagnosed with an uncurable terminal cancer. The doctors gave him six months. He ended up living a little more than three years. But when he got his diagnosis, what Taylor did is he immediately began a quest for this kind of deep, strong, unshakable joy that would hold up under the weight of his approaching death. He says, I got to know. So he started studying his Bible. He started reading everything he could. He's like, I want a joy that death can't touch. So where can I find it? And he actually commented on our verses here in verses two to four. So here's what he said. These verses are not against joy, but against folly. Those who have experienced deep joy have discovered a strange thing. That in its poignancy, it is closer to sorrow than it is to mirth. That's that lighthearted, cheap laugh. The deepest joy carries with it a pain and a longing that truly make the heart better. Whereas the laughter of fools in the house of mirth undoubtedly makes the heart worse. Deep seriousness is not at all an enemy to joy, only to folly. I love that. And then as I read more, he, he's not alone in his testimony about this idea of serious joy. Here's two, mother, two other quotes. Charles Spurgeon said, Be not frivolous, but be joyful. Gravely, heartily, deeply joyful. Martin Lloyd-Jones, a century later, said, People have this foolish notion that you cannot be happy and serious at the same time. That is where the trouble comes in. But you can. The only joy worth having is a serious joy, a sober joy, a deep joy, a solid joy. Friends, don't you want a joy like that? Here it says the wise don't consider death because they don't want to be unhappy. They lay to heart Sorry, I said that incorrectly. The wise don't consider death because they want to be unhappy. They lay to heart the lessons of death because they want to truly live and have that kind of real, solid joy. Now, we know that the reality is people don't face death usually because they fear death. That's why we don't like to talk about it, think about it, or face it. But the good news is that for those who trust in Jesus, death has lost its sting. 
Jesus died so that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. And deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. So the good news is that now we can face death in Jesus because he has set us free from the fear of it. Death was once my great opponent. Fear once had a hold on me. But the son who died to save us rose that we would be free indeed. So because of Jesus, now, friends, we don't need to fear death. Instead, we listen to its sermon because death is preaching to us. And the funeral casket is a better preacher than the baby crib. It's teaching us what really matters and how to live in light of it. And the wise lay it to heart. So let me just ask you this morning, do you lay death to heart? Do you live differently because you know that one day your life will end? Or is most of your life set up and geared around just living as though there will never be an end? Does the reality of death focus you? Does it sweeten your joys and soften your sorrows? Does death inform your prayers, both for you and for others? Or do you find yourself only praying for the things of this life? Things at work, health, finances, and those aren't wrong to pray for, but do you ever pray about things that are lasting? Do you ever pray for faith, for joy, for God's kingdom to come, for people to be saved, for a, for a perseverance? Do you ever pray with longing? Do you, are your prayers informed by death? The preacher says, <clears throat> the wise listen to death's sermon and lay it to heart. All right, now the second piece of wisdom for everyday adversity deals with something else we like to avoid, and that is rebuke. So look at verses five and six. He says, it is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. For as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of the fools. This also is vanity. All right, so let's just be honest. None of us likes to be corrected, all right? I think that's fair to say. But let's also be honest and say that all of us need to be corrected from time to time. We all need other people who love us enough to speak into our lives and tell us that the way we're acting or the way we're thinking, saying that's, that's just not right. Like, that doesn't line up with what God has said. Now, in the moment, all rebuke seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. On the other hand, fools, man, they, they don't have time for that. They ignore the rebukes of the wise, or they just avoid being in a situation where they might hear them at all. And instead, they say, no, 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 let me hear the songs of the fools. Their playlist is filled with worldly wisdom that never rebukes them for sin. That'd be a downer. But instead, it just delights in and encourages them in their sin. It tells them, just have fun. Just live for the moment. You do you, right? 
Their songs laugh at the idea of taking God seriously or like centering your lives around him. That's so stodgy and traditional and old-fashioned. Why don't you let loose a little bit? But look what it says about this laughter of fools in verse 6. It says it's like the crackling of thorns under a pot. Now it's talking about a fire underneath a cooking pot. Now if you've ever built a fire, this is like fire 101 I think, you know that you can toss on some thin little sticks, some, some brambles, and they'll ignite pretty quickly. They'll flare up for a moment. There'll be lots of snapping and sparks. But they'll burn out really quickly. If you want a long-lasting fire, don't get a bunch of tiny little thorns, right? Get some logs. A fire built of thorns, it's worthless. If you're trying to cook over it, it won't last long enough to cook anything. It won't even keep you warm. And he says, that's what the laughter of fools is like. Yeah, it flares up suddenly. They're always ready to laugh about anything and everything. Everything's a joke. And there's lots of noise and show and sparks. And oh, look how much fun we're having. But he says it doesn't last. As quickly as it comes, it goes. And in the end, it's worthless. It doesn't keep you warm. It's not able to, you're not able to cook over it. There's no value to it. So for us this morning, we need to ask ourselves, which am I listening to? Am I listening to the rebukes of the wise? Or would I rather hear the laughing songs of the fools? When people point out ways that you're wrong in your thinking or your actions, will you hear the rebukes of the wise? Or will you just tune it out and go back to the song of the fools? Proverbs 12.1 says, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof is stupid. Chapel, let's be a people who loves rebuke because we love knowledge. In fact, let me encourage you, invite correction. Tell people, do you see anything? Like what I just explained, was there anything in there you felt like was not in line with truth? Or when you look at my life, is there anything that you're like, ah, that's a little concerning? Invite correction and then accept it humbly. And on the other end, let's love one another enough to gently offer rebuke when it's needed. Let's listen to the rebukes of wisdom instead of the song of fools. Then in the third section of wisdom for everyday adversities, we come to yet one more thing we naturally try to avoid. Patience, right? We can't stand patience. We are all like the man who tried to grow in patience, but gave up because it just took too long, right? Everybody's laughing because they're like, oh yeah, I would too, yeah. We hate waiting. And yet the preacher tells us there's much wisdom in patience. After all, we don't know what will come next, right? So we should wait patiently to see what God will do. And he shows us this need for patience through four different ways we are impatient. We're just going to hit these quick. First, in verse 7, he says we can be impatient about money. He says, surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bribe corrupts the heart. So the oppression he's talking about here is a type of extortion. It's describing a situation where maybe finances are tight, things are a little closer than you'd like them to be, or on the other hand, maybe there's just a, an opportunity right in front of you where you see, I, I can make some good money here, but it requires acting in a way I wouldn't normally. 
maybe just tiptoeing across that ethical line. Doing something that, yeah, it's a little gray. I don't, I don't know if it's wrong. I'd, it's probably not right either. He says when we have these opportunities, when we look for a quick fix, instead of waiting for God to provide, it usually means we're going to make unwise decisions. When we seize the financial advantage available to us, if we bend the rules a little bit, or if we just make some money by just agreeing to not, to not look and look the other way, he says we're acting in madness and our hearts have been corrupted. Instead, we should patiently trust the Lord to provide through righteous means. Then verse 8, better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So here we're told it's better to be patient and withhold judgment until the end of a thing rather than arrogantly jumping to a knee-jerk reaction. You, haven't you found this to be true? There's often wisdom in taking a let's wait and see approach and patiently persevering. But our pride, though, wants immediate results, immediate change. So we arrogantly think we know what's best and so we rush to judgment. Somebody says that, oh, well, let me tell you what... New policy at work. Oh, that'll never work because I've, right? There's just an arrogance that thinks we always know. And so we always are rushing to judgment or moving on to the next thing. That didn't work. I tried it for five minutes. I'm going to try, oh, that didn't work either. I tried it for two. Patience, it says, is better than pride. So how are you doing here? We can, we can say all day long, I'm trusting God's timing, but are you? The question is, how do you respond when things aren't on your timeline? When that thing doesn't happen as quickly as you wish it did? When you're still waiting? Will you trust God's timing? Then we see the impatience of anger in verse 9. It says, be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. In other words, fools have short fuses, but the wise are slow to anger. Proverbs backs this up. It says things like, Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Whoever is slow to anger is better than the mighty, and he who rules the spirit than he who takes the city. Good sense makes one slow to anger, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. In other words, if you want to be wise, be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. This slowness to anger is one way the wise reflect what our God is like, who is also slow to anger. Then the last type of impatience he points out might be, might be the most surprising. The last type of impatience is nostalgia. Look at verse 10. Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. Nostalgia is when we are impatient with the way things are now, so we complain about the present and we idolize the past. We constantly are looking back to those good old days. And we do this in all kinds of ways. I don't know if any of us are exempt from it. I'm painting with broad strokes here, but here's a few ways I have seen it in my own life. Usually, it's typically the older generations will do it with the way the country is or the way the the morality of society is. It's always, well, I remember back then the country was great and awesome and we had everything we needed and, 
Or back then, people didn't used to talk that way, or they treated people like this. Or you come down, this probably spans all the ages, I've heard people do it with church. Oh man, back in the old days of this church, that God was doing so many things, and we had this activity, and that was going on, and back then, things were great. And the way I hear a lot of younger people do it, particularly younger Christians, is idolizing their experience in college ministries. They look back and they, at a unique season of their life and say, oh, that's when I was really experiencing God, when I really connected with him. That's when we really had community. That's when I was really living on mission. I wish we could get back there. So we all do it, and I'm just scratching the surface. But the problem with nostalgia is that it's built on the lie that the past was really better. But really, we just all airbrush the past. It's like those new cameras and phones that let you remove the things in a picture you don't like, and you can sharpen and brighten the things that you do. That's what nostalgia does with the past. It cleans up the photo, removing the things we don't like and heightening the things we do, and then we look at it and we think that's an actual real picture of what the past was like. It's not. And there are three problems with nostalgia. First, the old days really weren't better. Ecclesiastes teaches us this, remember? From chapter 1, what has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Friends, the details might change, but the core realities and the core problems are the same in every generation. Second, nostalgia doesn't help you live wisely today. Instead of figuring out the best way forward, you're constantly retreating backward to the past. And third, living in the past will cause you to miss out on God's gifts for you today. You can't see the good that's right in front of you because you're so busy looking behind you. And what the preacher wants us to see is that all this impatience with anger and nostalgia and with money and just knee-jerk reactions, all of this impatience is really a failure to trust the sovereignty of God. Either we get so worried about the future or nostalgic about the past that we forget that every day belongs to God. In verses 11 and 12, he closes that section by summarizing the value of wisdom. He says, Wisdom is good with an inheritance. An advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. He's acknowledging, look, just like money does offer some real protection in times of adversity. If you lose a job or your car breaks down, money can help protect you. He said in the same way, wisdom offers real protection as we navigate the challenges and complexities of life. Including when we face things we'd rather avoid. Like death rebuke, and patience. So there is a great good in wisdom for everyday adversities. But then that brings us to the preacher's big finish here. Here's how he wants us to think about all of our days. Look with me at 13 and 14. He says, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider, God has made the one as well as the other, 
so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. We all know that sometimes there will be things in our life that look crooked to us. Things that, if we're honest, we would change if we could. There's pain, there's sorrow, disappointment, struggle. And we would change them if we could, but we can't. For who can change what God has done and is doing? That's what he's asking. But the good news is, it's better that we can't change them. Because even in the times that seem crooked and bent to us, God is using all of it for our good. Every day, whether good or bad, is part of his kind and sovereign purposes. And to know this and be assured of this, we have only to look at the worst day in history. The day Jesus died on the cross was the worst, most twisted day the universe has ever seen. If there was ever a day you look at it and be like, that's not right. No, 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 that can't happen. That's horrible. That's bad. That's bleak. That's immoral. That's wrong. It's unjust. That was the day. The Son of God, the perfect and holy one, was killed by the very ones he created. And yet, on this most twisted of days, God used it to do his greatest work. Through Jesus' death, God gave us eternal life. Through the sorrow of Good Friday, God gave us never-ending joy of the resurrection. And through the condemnation of the cross, God gives us the forgiveness of the empty tomb. When things looked darkest, God was working. In fact, what the cross teaches us is that God does some of his best work when things look their worst. So friends, no matter what you're facing today, God is sovereign over your day. And if you belong to him through faith in Jesus, he has promised to use every day for your good. So how do we live in light of that? What does it tell us? Celebrate the good days. It actually commands us here to be joyful. Don't you love that? You think the Bible's all doom and gloom? It says, you better be happy on the good days. That's a command from God. And on the hard days, remember that the same God made them both. And while we may not know what's coming next, while we may not know what tomorrow holds, we know the one who holds tomorrow. So in our everyday trials, we can trust and rest in the everyday God. Whether it's a good day or a bad day, we can still praise him. As Job said, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Would you pray with me? Father, these are weighty realities that cut against the grain of what our society tells us. Would you help our hearts and minds to be more shaped and fashioned by the truths of your word and the trends of our cultures. God, would we, would we gladly see every day as yours? Would we wake up every day saying, this is the day that the Lord has made? And would we rejoice and be glad in it? Whether the sun is shining or whether it's raining outside. 
Help us to know that in all days, you have good plans and purposes for your people. So help us not to grumble or complain or try to trade one day for another, but help us to treasure the days you've given us as gifts of a loving Father. We ask for your help in doing this. In Jesus' name, amen.